Welcome to Breast Cancer Update Surgical Edition. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Pat Borgen, and to begin, he raised an issue that seems to have been on his mind walking in the door. The American College of Surgeons trial evaluating the need for axillary dissection in patients with positive sentinel nodes. So the American College of Surgeons Oncology Trials Group ran a trial in which women with minimal axillary disease could be re-randomized to a completion axillary dissection or observation. This was strictly done in breast conservation. Everybody got radiation and everybody got chemotherapy. So great trial, important question, but it was a trial that both surgeons and patients were nervous about. And so from the very beginning, Z11 under accrued, and it did so in a dramatic fashion. In order to show equivalence between no dissection and dissection, they would have needed 5,000 patients in the trial with about six to eight years of follow-up. At the end of the day, they accrued just over 800 patients. Almost 200 of those patients were lost to follow-up, but were included in the analysis as the intent to treat group. And so the comparison groups were a little over 300 patients each in the two groups. And of course, it showed equivalence. The manuscript was published in JAMA, so that's unusual. When there's a paradigm-changing paper in breast cancer, it shows up in the New England Journal, Lancet, JCO. So right off the bat, it was curious that this was published in JAMA. What happened was the national media picked up the results. The New York Times headline on the front page was, Study Shakes the Pillars of Breast Cancer Care in This Country. It brought about an overnight move away from axillary node dissection in a rather dramatic way. Absolutely. I was giving a lecture in New Jersey at an academic medical center about six months ago, and they said, we don't even do a sentinel node anymore because the Z11 taught us that the axilla is irrelevant. So you would have had to only read the New York Times article <laughs> to make that decision. When you look at this trial, there are a lot of issues. You can't include patients who are lost to follow-up. There were almost 10% of patients who either had negative lymph nodes and were randomized, or they didn't know the status of the lymph nodes. So an evidence-based medicine consortium made up of members of the American College of Surgeons and the Canadian Association of General Surgeons got together, led by a guy you know named Tom Julian, and they evaluated this from a statistical perspective. And they concluded, which was published in the Canadian Journal of Surgery about a year ago, that because of the flaws in the methodology and the under accrual, if this was our only line of evidence, this should not be practice changing. This individual single trial should not be practice changing. And yet, here we are two years later, and there has been an almost astronomical change in the approach to the axilla. Now, the flaws in Z11 don't mean that it's wrong. Identification of a mistake does not prove truth. But 
The fact is, is that it became uncool to question Z11. The New York Metropolitan Breast Cancer Group has never even debated this issue. The paper was published, people said, look at the p-values, and we changed our practice. Now, here's the scary part. The scary part is, is that from the very beginning, people wondered whether the radiation oncologists might have changed their radiation tangents which initially the authors said, no, that would be a trial violation. Well, it turns out that they did. It turns out that the radiologists who treated patients, when they realized that there was no axillary dissection, they included axillary tangents in their radiation. So that what in fact this trial showed us was that axillary surgery and axillary radiation both achieve the same goal. If it has the power to make that statement. If it has it the power. It sounds like it doesn't. It's very, very underpowered. But if a surgeon is going to embrace Z11 and move away from axillary dissection, then he better have his radiation doctor treat the patient with the same tangents that were used in Z11. I mean, because we do know that when you don't do a dissection in a certain fraction of patients, you're leaving tumor there. Right. We know that axillary mets metastasize. Their clonality studies have been done fanatically getting local margins clear in the breast and then leaving disease in the axilla is sort of counterintuitive. Now, this is not to throw the baby out with the bathwater because I think there are good lessons from Z11 and maybe even some good sequelae. Z11 on the surface has allowed us to use some judgment. We're not simply blindly removing axillary nodes anymore and that's a good thing. There's not one bit of benefit to the patient from removing 15 or 20 negative lymph nodes. But the challenge to the surgeon who's listening to this is, how do I apply Z11 to the patient that's sitting in front of me? That's really the challenge. Z11 patients were older, almost all over 60, small tumors, minimal, minimal disease in the sentinel node, estrogen receptor positive, and they got axillary radiation, and they got chemotherapy. Estrogen receptor, you mean most of them happened to be, it wasn't a criteria. It just turns out that the favorable scenarios got randomized. So older patients with ER positive tumors got randomized. So my point is, is that we didn't really have a national dialogue about Z11 the way that we did about mastectomy and modified radical mastectomy and breast conservation and sentinel node, and even different types of chemotherapy the switch to dose-dense chemotherapy brought about a national discussion and a debate. It just didn't happen with Z11. And that's disappointing. That's culturally disappointing. I think that surgeons should read the study carefully, and I think they should read the evidence-based reviews, and then decide how they're going to apply Z11 to their practices. So I think what a lot of surgeons want to know is what investigators think about it, and they're hearing what you think about it, but what about the rest of the surgical oncology investigator community, both informally and discussions and meetings and stuff like that, as well as publications, because I'm sure there's a lot of stuff out there I haven't seen. Have these points been vividly raised or not raised at all? These points have been vividly raised. This trial created so much momentum away from axillary surgery, that it's not possible to sort of put the genie back in the bottle. It's not. However, how we apply Z11 to our patients, I think there's still a lot to be learned there. I think that 
a young African-American woman with three positive lymph nodes who has a triple negative breast cancer. I'm going to dissect her axilla. There was no patient like her in Z11. We are not so confident of our cytotoxic chemotherapy and triple negative breast cancer in young women. And I think that when the radiology community publishes what their axillary tangents were, I think we're going to feel a lot better. So you brought up the possibility of, you know, somehow seeding from an axillary node. But what about local control? In this sort of day and age, do we see people with axillary recurrences? Do we see people particularly with uncontrollable axillary recurrence? Unfortunately, in Brooklyn, New York, where I am now, where there's very little primary prevention, very little screening, and not as much public awareness of breast cancer as you would imagine, we see a lot of things. And we see a lot of undertreated disease with bad axillary recurrences, chronic lymphedema, brachial plexus involvement. We do see a lot of locally advanced, sort of neglected breast cancers. Z11 clearly didn't see that. Z11 was looking at a group of very early stage, minimal node positive patients. Closely watched. Closely watched. Well, except for the 200 that were lost to follow-up, they were closely watched. (laughs) No, I'm not suggesting that we ignore Z11. I'm just disappointed. I've been in this field, as you know, for about 26 years. And it's always been wonderful to debate issues. It's always been wonderful to say, what works, what doesn't work. I don't think it's a coincidence that the New England Journal didn't publish this. I think it's not a coincidence that Lancet didn't publish this. I don't think the authors went to JAMA as their first choice. There are consort guidelines for publishing research. This trial was way outside of those guidelines, and JAMA does espouse to adhere to those guidelines. I just wish that there was a national debate or a dialogue about how are we going to apply this trial rather than this wholesale abandonment of axillary surgery. Well, you know, hopefully maybe this interview can spark a little interest. I certainly am interested, and I'm surprised as hell because, I mean, we haven't done as many surgical programs as I would like over the last year or two, but I haven't heard anybody sitting in your seat saying what you just said, so I find it really interesting. I want to switch over to another issue because I see you have a paper in the American Journal of Surgery, The Role of the Breast Cancer Surgeon in Personalized Cancer Care, Clinical Utility of the 21-Gene Assay. Well, I think that very often the surgeon begins as the captain of the ship and maintains the position as captain of the ship. And I think that the surgeon has the most power in influencing the trajectory that patients take. And so I think that it's important for surgeons to be aware of this cultural change towards a personalized approach to oncology. Having said that, what we're advocating in this particular article is a conversation between the surgeon and the oncologist. I don't think that it makes any sense for the surgeon to order a test that the oncologist doesn't want to use. And so to me, this article is about the surgeon being aware of the platform so that he can or she can initiate the appropriate dialogue with the oncologist. For example, as you know, patients 82 years old and on three pressors, and the oncologist says, there's no chance of me giving chemotherapy anyway. Probably no reason to get the 21 gene assay. Conversely, a patient with lymphovascular invasion, younger patient, maybe a BRCA2 heterozygote, 
where the oncologist says, I really know I'm going to give this patient chemo. So there's, again, there's no reason to get the assay. So what I believe is critically important is that the surgeon be intellectually involved in this by understanding what the genomic platforms can and cannot do so that he or she can initiate the discussion. And I see that one of the things you talk about in this paper is, I guess there's some data out there looking at when you get back results, I guess, in the sort of the course of the patient's disease based on whether the 21 gene assays ordered by the surgeon or oncology, like 40,000 specimens you talk about here. And as you might expect and guess, when the surgeon orders it, you get the result back quicker, which, you know, it's nice when you're an oncologist and the patient walks in and has the oncotype in their hand. Yeah, this was true when I had a very, very, very affluent patient population at Sloan Kettering. And it's true with my blue-collar working group from Brooklyn, New York. Chemo is very often the greatest fear in the mind of the patient. And even during the discussions about lumpectomy versus mastectomy, the patient's going to say, do I need chemo? Do I need chemo? If we can help the patient get to that answer two or three weeks or four weeks sooner, that's really in our patient's benefit. So I was flashing back when your successor at Memorial, Monica Marr, was sitting in your chair. And what she talked about is, you know, sort of based on their discussions with the medical oncologist, they have these sort of global parameters for when to order the oncotype. So, you know, for example, Cliff and all these people, and they know when there's a node negative tumor, it's ER positive, they're going to order it unless it's one of these unusual situations. Is that the way it goes where you are right now? Well, the answer is yes. When I was at Sloan, we were treating about 1,600 new breast cancers a year. And so presenting each and every case was not possible. So we had to come up with guidelines. Where I am today, we treat about 650 breast cancers a year. That allows us to present every single patient. So we actually have a conversation. Hmm. We meet for about two hours every Tuesday and we review what information we have with the oncologist, the radiation, the geneticists, so the decision is made in a group. Brooklyn is enormous. Brooklyn is a city of three million people. There are 14 large hospitals. Brooklyn has about 5,000 new cases of breast cancer a year. If it was a state, it would be about number 15 in the country. Wow. And there's virtually no subspecialization. I think there are two or three SSO members in Brooklyn. And so when I first got to Brooklyn in late 06 and started visiting hospitals and giving grand rounds and trying to make friends, most hospitals had never considered a genomic platform. Some weren't getting HER2 new. We were fortunate if they were getting ERPR on breast cancers. And so Brooklyn has been medically way, way, way behind the curve. We've set up a number of CME courses free for surgeons and oncologists because the standard of care is not where I think it should be. I'll give an example. We see a lot of patients who come in to see their surgeon, they have a lump, and the surgeon goes right to the OR and takes the lump out. No mammogram, no ultrasound, no core biopsy. Now that makes our job much more difficult. That's happening nowadays? Now, every single week, every week, I'll see one or two patients like that. So you call the surgeon and say, gee, I'd like to talk to you about this. Sometimes they hang up. (laughs) But yeah, the hospital I'm at now is six miles from Sloan Kettering. And the medical culture is extremely slow to change, late adopters. So if the phone rings and someone says, gee, I've got a patient in front of me with this, 
I would be so happy to talk to that surgeon. Interesting. Getting back to this issue of chemotherapy and Oncotype, one of the big controversies, and I'm curious for your perspective, is sort of patients at the fringe. You know, if you have a patient who has a node-negative tumor that's, you know, say between one centimeter and two centimeter, almost everybody thinks about this. And, you know, clearly by doing the test, you can get a pretty good idea whether chemo is going to benefit the patient or not. But there's also a lot of people, including, you know, Cliff Huddis, your former colleague, and many others who just believe biology is more important than anatomy. They're going to get it if it's a larger tumor. They're going to get it if it's one or two positive nodes. And they maybe if they've got a patient they really don't want to give chemo to, they might even get it in a patient with several nodes. What do you think about that strategy? Well, I think that for virtually all of my career, I've believed that we need to move from a descriptive understanding to a functional understanding. And I think that the 21-gene panel from Oncotype is the first significant step in that direction. It's not the last step. It certainly is chapter one of an important book. And so I really share Cliff's propensity towards profiling tumors, even on the periphery. You know, he I was interviewing him recently, actually, and he gave me a phenomenal analogy I've never heard anybody say before. He said, you know, let's say you have a young woman, lots of positive nodes. You know, you want to do everything you possibly can for her, and yet the tumor's triple negative. You're not going to give her trastuzumab. You're not going to give her hormone therapy. So even though she's very high risk, you don't do these things because it's not going to work. And in his view, that kind of applies to the oncotype if they have a low recurrence score. And it's kind of an interesting thought, and I don't know, to me it makes sense. You know, I, it makes perfect sense to me, too. I think what's interesting about the way the data is unfolding, that that low recurrence score group is actually telling you two things. Number one, it's telling you that this patient's going to get their benefit from blocking estrogen. But it's also probably telling you that even if the patient is a Neil Love, I call this Neil Love one percenter, <laughs> the patients who say, I'll take chemo for a one percent right. benefit, they may not get 1% benefit in the low recurrence they, score group. They might get 1% acute leukemia and right. cardiomyopathy, though. Exactly. So I can't stress enough. I think it's really the first step in a very exciting direction. Another thing I'm curious about your perspective on, as you say, certainly the 21-gene assay is not perfect by any means. And you know, there's research going on in node-negative and node-positive disease to further figure out how to really utilize this. But there are many other tests that are being developed with the same intent, the so-called mammoprint, and there's a bunch of other PAM-50. I can't even keep track of all of them. What are your perception about these other tests? And I guess the one thing I wonder about is it kind of seems like when you look at tests nowadays, it's not so much the technology, how they do it, but kind of the data behind it. You know, what do they have to back it up? Right. Well, so I'm pro-genomic profiling. I don't have any financial interest in any of the platforms that are out there. In terms of a test being prognostic and predictive, I think Oncotype is it. I know that the mammoprint people have made some recent claims. And I think that the boards that put together practice guidelines like ASCO and NCCN will evaluate all that. Where I might use a mammoprint is in a patient with an ER negative or a HER2 positive tumor, where I really want to understand what the biology of the disease is and I want to really look at prognosis. I don't believe the data is there to be predictive of response to chemotherapy. 
PAM50 is interesting. I'm just beginning to take a look at that. Mammostrat is interesting. Again, I think that if you imagine how complex breast cancer is, if you imagine how many family members there are in breast cancer, it's a staggering number. And I think all of this research is in its infancy. Yeah, and actually, because I was going to ask you, talking about endocrine therapy and people with low recurrence score who, you know, usually are very endocrine responsive. And I wanted to get your impression of, I think, one of the biggest stories of breast cancer the last few years that occurred in December at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Meeting when they presented the ATLAS trial yeah. looking at 10 versus 5 years of tamoxifen. But I actually interviewed Richard Pito recently, you know, the meta-analysis right. Sir Richard Pito, and right. he was telling me that for his next, or sometime in the future, you know, maybe the next meta-analysis, he wants to get all the genomic assay data right. and start to kind of look at that from a meta-analytic point of view. And I'm like, okay, now you got a new project. <laughs> right. So I was really thunderstruck, to be honest with you, about Atlas, yeah. because I had grown up in the post-B14 era thinking that bad things happened after five years of tamoxifen. And just to clarify what you're saying, you're talking about the NSABP trial that back, I don't know, was it in the 90s, that reported maybe more recurrences with longer tamoxifen. Right. We always create these conceptual frameworks in oncology. And so the comparison there was to using antibiotics too long and selecting right. out a bad bug or a bad breast cancer. Or and tamoxifen was, becoming some kind of agonist or whatever. Exactly. Right? And some of the people who had done research, like Trevor Powell's, had constructed some models about how that might happen. And B14 was a tiny trial compared to Atlas. And a lot of what we saw was probably the tyranny of small numbers rather than a biologic effect. But what's interesting is that we applied that five years to the aromatase inhibitors when they first came out. So Atlas really turned everything on its head. Now, the practical reality, given the presence of the aromatase inhibitors, is that there are probably not a lot of patients who are premenopausal who will actually get 10 years of tamoxifen. Because as they go through menopause, it's likely they'll be converted over to an AI. But I thought Atlas was fascinating, and it was certainly enlightening. The other thing about Atlas, and Peter was really commenting on this a lot, is how it reflected the natural history of ER-positive disease and the impact of hormonal therapy. Because right. what he was explaining to me was that the benefits you see from hormonal therapy are delayed for you know five or ten years. So when you compare 10 to 5 years of tamoxifen, you don't even look at the first 5 years. There's no difference because right. you still have the benefit. Right. It's only when you get out to the next 5 years, and now you're talking about close to 30% fewer recurrences. Right. So it's right. just you know really a weird disease. Right. Just curious about one other issue related to hormonal therapy, which is, as you point out, there are not too many people who get through five years of tamoxifen without becoming menopausal, since most people nowadays are just using tamoxifen for premenopausal women. But then the question comes in, and actually, Pito, it's kind of interesting the way he phrases it. He talks about 10 years of endocrine therapy being better than five. So you know, kind of reading between the lines with him, he's thinking, you know, in the long run, this is characteristic of endocrine therapy, not just the tamoxifen. And of course, we don't know about going you know, beyond five years with aromatase inhibitors or trials out there right now. I'm not sure how often surgeons are involved with this. Is it always the medical oncologist? 
But are there situations, particularly with people with higher risk tumors, where right now you think maybe going beyond five years of an AI makes sense? 1,000% yes. If I have a patient who had 15 positive lymph nodes and she's 10 years out and she's been on tamoxifen or she's been on an AI and she's 10 years out, I don't want her to change anything. I actually tell her not to change the radio presets in her car. I think that we don't understand what's happening with these static drugs. They're not cytal drugs. We don't understand at the cellular level. And someone who's done well, I keep them on it for a long time. And I have anecdotally seen patients who've stopped for a variety of reasons, and sometimes something comes back, and frankly, we kick ourselves. So I guess particularly if the patient's already doing well without any toxicity, right. I mean, a lot of people have arthralgias right. and et cetera, et cetera. Right. You and I have talked in the past about skin-sparing mastectomy, and I'm curious where that stands. I think that there has been a national mindset change in favor of total skin-sparing mastectomy, and I think that's a good thing. I think that the fact that we removed the skin of the nipple and the areola going back to William Halstead, sort of concealed the fact that the skin of the nipple doesn't play a role in breast carcinogenesis. And so up until a few years ago at national meetings, this was still a hotly contested, hotly debated area. My sense of surgeons in America today, looking at the relatively large number of reports, long-term follow-up studies, the skin of the nipple is not a dangerous organ to leave behind. And so I think there's been a national trend towards considering nipple-sparing mastectomy. We're certainly seeing that in New York, and I really think this is a good thing. So even in Brooklyn? Well, at my center in Brooklyn, I can't really speak about the others. But in terms of the greater New York area, I would say all of the large centers, including Memorial, are offering nipple-sparing mastectomy. You talked about the great debates over the years that occur at surgical meetings, and one topic that's always out there is DCIS. Anything new in terms of that? Well, I think we're all watching very closely this new platform that Genomic Health has to look at local regional recurrence in patients treated with DCIS without radiation therapy. As you know, this was presented at San Antonio in December of 2011. And I don't know how much of a national uptake there's been, but to me, that makes sense. To me, it's the right direction to go into. The previous trials of lumpectomy followed by radiation therapy were excellent. Radiation is a standard of care, but it can't possibly be that every single patient with even a small amount of DCIS or an older patient will benefit equally from radiation. And so understanding the biology that all DCIS is not the same, I think is a step in the right direction. Are there situations right now where you or your team want to do an ocotype in a patient with DCIS? We do. We've done a few. I've probably done five in the past year. So an example is I had a patient from the Ukraine who was a teenager when Chernobyl blew up in 1986. Hmm. So even to mention radiation to her, she left the room. She had 2.5 centimeters of relatively high-grade DCIS. She was in her late 40s. And we felt that maybe the oncotype would give us numbers that would be meaningful to her 
and they did. She had a very high recurrence score, a very high risk of invasive cancer, and that test convinced her to take the radiation therapy. I think when people think about the DCIS platform, they think about it eliminating radiation. I see it both ways. I think it could help us convince patients as well. I guess another issue that sort of ties into that is partial breast irradiation with that as an option. What's your view on that? I guess we're still waiting for definitive trial answers. Yeah, I have been so impressed by the data from PETO's early breast cancer trial analysis, 78 trials, 42,000 patients. Radiation works. I think that whole breast radiation has set the bar very, very high. And I think with relatively minimal toxicities to the patient. So I guess I'm fundamentally a staunch believer in good surgery and good radiation therapy. We've not done a huge amount of accelerated partial breast radiation. And some of that is different reasons. The mammocyte balloon that was popularized leaves a large area of dead space in the breast when you remove the balloon. And I'm not a big fan of that. And as you said, I think the trials, there are a lot of people doing accelerated breast radiation out there before the trials are sort of available to evaluate. So in general, I would say that my bias is good surgery and good radiation. And to me, that's mostly whole breast radiation. Are people still argue about margins in DCIS? So I think the interesting thing about margins in DCIS is that it's like the fifth greatest lie in the world that when we take out an area of DCIS and we give it to a good pathologist, Paul Peter Rosen, or name them, they're probably looking at less than 5% of the surface area of what we've just handed them. What Melvin Silverstein did by orienting his specimens along the long axis of the calcium and then step sectioning and serial sectioning was almost unbelievably labor intensive. And Mel had the best chance of really looking at margins in that setting. There's no other center in the country that can do that. And so to me, I reject the notion that there's a number, that I would accept a four millimeter margin and I wouldn't accept a two millimeter margin. Here's what I think matters for the surgeon. The volume of resection, Jay Harris many years ago talked about the volume of resection for DCIS as being a better predictor of local recurrence. So if I receive a report that says that whatever I took out was divided into 21 blocks and 20 have DCIS in it, I don't have clear margins. If they say five do, I probably do have clear margins. So I think we have to look at other available data. Also, when we talk about margins in DCIS, the surgeon has to really understand what the report says. A one millimeter margin can mean there was a single duct from the edge, or it can mean there's a broad front. And I think there are two different scenarios. So I reject the notion that there's a magic number out there. Some of what we're doing is creating a medical legal document that says I have clear margins for the Miami attorneys. There has never been a trial of margins, nor will there ever be a trial of margins. We're going to have to arrive at this without a randomized trial. Anything else in your mind nowadays in terms of surgery for breast cancer? Yes. There's one 800-pound gorilla issue out there that we haven't talked about today. It is very clear in the United States that the rate 
of mastectomy is going up. This is true both in the prophylactic mastectomy setting and in the breast cancer patients. It has become popular for researchers from other countries to sort of point at America and say, why are so many mastectomies being done? Sort of arguing that we're doing too many mastectomies. So there are a couple of debates this week at the Miami Breast Conference about whose decision it is. Is it the surgeon's decision to say, Mrs. Jones, you should have breast conservation? Or rather, is it a partnership where the surgeon helps the patient arrive at the best answer for her? Monica Morrow did a fascinating study looking at data from SEER, the Surveillance Epidemiology and End Result Project, where they got data on how long the patient and the doctor were together, how much time was spent. And what they found was that the more time the surgeon spent with the patient, the more likely the patient chose mastectomy. We had done a survey of female surgeons in the American College of Surgeons who treat breast cancer. And we gave them a typical T2N1 breast cancer. And we asked them what they would choose themselves for local control. And about 65% said, I would choose mastectomy. So our assumption in 1991, when the NCI wrote a consensus statement saying that mastectomy and breast conservation were equal, but breast conservation is preferable because it's less disfiguring, we assumed that every woman in America would want lumpectomy and radiation. That was wrong. What do you think the women's surgeons, what do you think is going through their mind? The fact that, you know, considering the way reconstruction is done, you know, you really, it's not worth going through the anxiety? I think it's multifactorial. I think that at its core, I think it's a desire to reduce local regional recurrences. Surgeons like to believe that their recurrence rate with lumpectomy is the same as that with mastectomy. Absolutely, that's not true. There's never been a shred of data that supports that. It's likely that a mastectomy well done has a one to 2% local recurrence rate for stage one and two breast cancer. And lumpectomy is probably eight to 10%. Small difference, but a non-trivial difference. I think secondly, reconstructive techniques have gotten better. I think implant reconstruction has gotten better. I think there are patients and doctors who would like to avoid radiation therapy. I think if I'm remembering correctly, it was that same 2000 consensus conference that actually said lumpectomy is preferred. It did. The word preferred you know, appeared in italics. And what happened was nationally, Organizations started grading breast cancer centers based on their rate of breast conservation. Well, Dr. Morrow's study says that's probably wrong. The centers that had a higher mastectomy rate may have spent more time. Their patients may have a better fundamental understanding of the risks and benefits.